there. It's another dish cast. It's a beautiful spring. We're on a kind of a roll here with the people we have. And today we thought we'd we come up with another completely uncontroversial and <laughs> tedious and acceptable subject. We're going to defend colonialism, or at least my guest is going to defend colonialism, and I am going to probe him on his defenses of colonialism. And his name is Nigel Bigger, and he's an Anglican priest, academic, and writer. And he's formerly the Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. He directs the McDonald Center for Theology, Ethics, and Public Life, and chairs the board of the UK's Free Speech Union. And his new book, the one that he had a, quite a trouble actually getting published, but having published it in Britain earlier this year, turned into uh, a few weeks on the bestseller list. Turns out that figuring out the pluses and minuses of colonialism and the motives for it and the morality of it is still actually a, a subject that lots of people are interested in, in talking about. Nigel, I just want to thank you for coming on the Dishcast to talk, uh, let's talk about the colonies. And here we are from one of the former colonies, uh, reflecting upon uh, the British legacy. Thank you for, for coming. Tell me as we start a little bit about yourself. Where were you born and, and, and where did you grow up? Uh, so, Andrew, I, I was born in southwest Scotland in spite of my accent. If you catch me when I'm slightly drunk and I say the word Jerusalem, you can hear the Scots come through, but otherwise I sound <laughs> English. I'm, I was born in 1955, which is important for, in a moment, I'll tell you why. And I, I went to school, first of all, in Scotland, then in southern England, and came up to Oxford in 1973 to read history, before you did, seven, eight years later. That... Then I went to North America for, turned out to be seven years. I spent two years in Canada studying theology, then proceeded to the University of Chicago, ended up doing a doctorate there, moved to Toronto, married my American wife, came back here in 85, and we've been over on this side of the Atlantic since, since then. When did you become a priest? I was a Dane deacon in 1990 and priesthood in 91, in my, and... my late 30s. Tell me about that. It's, it's, it's not that usual for people in their late 30s, to, to, especially academics, to decide to become yes. a priest, or at least, you know, an Anglican priest. I mean, not a real priest, but, a, you know, an Anglican priest. <laughs> <laughs> now there. Um, <laughs> down, boy. <laughs> my, my inner Protestant rises. Yes, my inner Catholic always rises. It's, it's permanently aroused. So I wasn't brought up in the church, Andrew. My well, that father, probably explains it, right? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right there. Yeah. Um, Sorry, go on. Uh, but but I, that makes I, it more interesting, Nigel. Tell me. So what exactly? Tell, tell unlay exactly, lay out exactly how one does how one that happens in one's life. Well, it, it, uh, I mean, at this point, you know, looking back, trying to make sense of how you got to where you are. Mm -hmm. You may appreciate it, and it's, it's a bit of a mystery, really. But it is. So there I was. I mean, my, my parents weren't church going. My mother was a lapsed Methodist. My father's a lapsed Presbyterian. I went to the local church of Scotland Sunday school once and never went again because I was bored. But I went, to, I went to schools that were run by evangelical Anglican Christians. And I'm like, you know, I can go into detail, but come the age of 13, I decided to become a Christian. And I remember my, my parents were puzzled but benign. And I remember my 
Father, bless him, putting his hand on my shoulder, probably for the only time in my life that I, that's probably why I remember it, but he put his hand on my shoulder and said, it's okay, son, it's just a phase. <laughs> uh, well, some phase, Dad. And I've, I've remained a Christian ever since, but I've always been shy of institutions. I, I've always been worried that mother would swallow me up. And so I prefer to be on the outside of the inside. And although people suggested I should think about becoming a, a, a priest, a parish minister, from my early 20s, I, I refused it. I wasn't interested. I, I was interested in Christianity, no interest at all in becoming a, a, a kind of professional paid up clergyman. But so I, I ended up with a doctorate in theology in 1986, I was doing research here in Oxford, writing books. And I decided, you know, having, having decided to get married after five years of dithering and having decided for the first time when I was in Toronto to get involved with a political party, I thought it was about time I got off the fence and began to take public responsibility for what I happened to believe. And also I thought, I thought that exposing my thinking about ethics, I'm a, my, I'm a professional Christian ethicist, exposing my ethics to the pastoral problems of real people would do me good, even if it didn't do them any good. So I decided it was time to step up and, and uh, take responsibility and to become a priest. Hmm. This may, might be a question you haven't heard before, but the idea that a Christian ethicist would take time to defend something like colonialism is for most people, I would think, kind of a, a surprising move. I mean, of all the things to defend in the world, for a Christian to defend the occupation and exploitation of other countries seems a little odd. I mean, so tell me, is it because you're interested in defending complex moral situations or is it, or is it because the people who are criticizing and have criticized empire and colonialism have overreached, in your opinion? Or what, what led you, as a moral theologian, to defend something that would seem, certainly to most people in the United States, yeah. to be morally, morally indefensible? Yeah, so, I mean, you're quite right. I, I have been in the business of trying to reach judgments on complex moral issues, not least war. So, so I have a propensity for that, but that doesn't quite answer your question about why colonialism. So just to, to make clear to your listeners, I don't simply defend colonialism. And in fact, I prefer to avoid the word ism altogether because, excuse me, colonialism, because that implies something that was kind of unitary and coherent, a project. Mm -hmm. And a part of my basic view is, historically speaking, colonial endeavor empires comprise all sorts of phenomena, some good, some bad. So no wonder I don't seek to defend exploitation or the unjust invasion of other people's territories or wanton slaughter. I mean, by definition, I don't do that. No, you don't, but you rationalize all of it. The, the book is a series of rationalizations of things that most people would find morally abhorrent. And that's, yeah. that's, that's different. You're not defending the British Empire so much as you're saying Everything you sort of think about empire yeah. is needs context, yeah. needs historical context. Yeah. And it's very complex origins and the 
variety of motives that are at play here yeah. just don't fit into this uh, Manichaean view of it being pure evil as against to as against a much more complicated historical uh, experience. Is is that a, yeah. a, a better explanation of what you're you're working at in this book? Yeah, that's close. Except you, if you talk about rationalizing unjust violence, it makes you sound as if I'm justifying. So, but but, but let's. Well, let's... I think you do in some ways. I mean, well, I don't think there's any. Yeah. Having read the book, I I. I... <laughs> I, I, it, it, it felt like a constant series of rationalizations. Some of them, some of them a little, let me put it this way, weak. But we'll go through it bit yeah. by bit. But that was, that was my impression of it, which yeah. is you, if you can't defend it, you yeah. can definitely make it more complicated for people. And that's, that's yeah. what this book does, I think. So, for example, what, let me ask you this question, what was the motive for the British Empire. So there was no motive. <laughs> that's to say there were dozens of motives. Trade was a basic one. So that's what sent the East India Company eastwards to, to India in the 1600s. Sometimes the lust for gold. That's what sent Francis Drake and others to the, to the coast of North America in, to some extent, but also war against Imperial Spain. Little ironically, the origins of English Empire were in the English anti-imperial, anti-Spanish imperial efforts of the late 1500s. And then you've got, so, you know, hands up here, sometimes the, the, the unjustified seizure of land because you want land. Now, you can, you can mitigate that to some extent by thinking that, by remembering that, you know, the, the hundreds of thousands of people from the British Isles and Europe crossing the Atlantic from the 1700s onwards, they were often fleeing dire poverty sometimes famine, and they wanted a, a better life. Does that justify them seizing land from native people of North America? No, it doesn't. But, but it, 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 what does it do? It, it makes it a bit more sympathetic for the plight of those who were desperate to find... Yes, but they world. viewed the natives of these lands quite clearly as having much, a much inferior right to own and to control the territory that they lived in. To those of complete strangers from a from a very long way away, and that in itself suggests a kind of even if they were fleeing poverty, even if they were fleeing religious discrimination, as as many of them were, as as many of them were trying to just find a better life for themselves, it was at the expense of other people already living in other places in yeah, which so those other people didn't really have much standing, did they? In in the in the views of the Europeans, except you argue that they did actually have some standing. Explain to me exactly how the English accorded standing to the natives of various places that they showed up in. So, so I, I think Andrew, attitudes changed among the on the part of Europeans and on the British. So you won't. Yes, you're quite right. I think settlers in in on the eastern coast of North America in the 1600s tended to regard Native Americans with contempt and fear. Not, all, not always, but, but, but often. And, and were, 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 partly because the, the Europeans were outnumbered often, there was, a, there was a sense of fear rather than respect and curiosity. But, and of course, attitudes on the part of those enslaving Africans and working on the plantations of the West Indies were, were racist and contemptuous, usually. However, 
in the late 1700s, you do get the emergence of the notion in Britain and elsewhere in Europe that, that for one human being to own another human being as his absolute property and the other human being having no rights whatsoever uh, became, became considered to be immoral and abhorrent. And that's why in the uh, 1787, you have the foundation in England of the Society for the Abolition of Slavery. And the, the, the abolitionist movement was powered by two streams of thought, one enlightenment, but, but also primarily in England, I think, Christian. And the, the conviction was that all human beings, regardless of their different cultures and even their different cultural development, are equal, basically equal in the eyes of God. And the, the abolition campaign in late 18th century England, early 19th century England was, was widely popular. I think some, uh, in some petitions to parliament in the 1780s commanded the signatures of up to uh, 20% of the total male population of the country. Yeah, there's no question, I think, that insofar as one looks at the British Empire, you can see that it's the most distinguishing aspect of it in the, the grand history of empires across the world is that it sought to eventually abolish itself and that it also sought to instill some sort of moral code upon those that are implementing its rule. But nevertheless, it was also actively at the time controlling areas that undoubtedly required the persecution, immiseration, and of course, mainly through viral and biological means, widespread destruction of the native populations. Now that, of course, how does one weigh that up? <clears throat> Smallpox's impact on, is that actually a function of empire? Is it simply a function of the fact that human beings began to move around the world? And as they began to move around the world, continued to spread diseases where immunity had not yet been found. But, but still, just to imagine the the effect of the English arriving in America to be what's essentially probably the most horrifying plague that ever existed in human history. Way up there, I mean, more than the Black Death in terms of what happened to the native inhabitants of the United States. That's a huge negative mark on the possibility of, of colonialism having any sort of positive effect. Well, well, y yes, it, it, it is a black mark, but I do think we have to distinguish between things that are caused that are for which people can be blamed and those they can't. I mean, well, um, you can be blamed because what business did you have oh, well, going across the ocean to someone else's territory and insisting you you have a right to be there? I mean, at some level, isn't that at its core what started colonialism? Is that not at its core? an unbelievably contemptuous and arrogant thing to do. Well, first of all, you, you need to distinguish, I mean, obviously your focus is North America, and really, but even there... Well, let's uh, talk uh, about and, Africa, say. I mean, yeah, yeah, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. <laughs> let's stick with North America for a moment. Even there, it started with the, the establishment of, of outposts on the coast, some of which were negotiated with, with, with native peoples. Later on, it became predatory, but, but the, the communication of disease whether whether in North America or also in Australia, what was inadvertent, it wasn't brought deliberately. And and also in Australia, it wasn't just brought by Europeans. There's evidence that smallpox was brought to us to northern Australia by fishermen from Indonesia. So this, this is, in my view, this is massively tragic, but it is caused 
by the movement, the migration of peoples. It's not a specific colonial evil. But let's go, let's go to India. In that case, India never, was never colonized in the sense that hundreds of thousands of Europeans transplanted themselves to India. They didn't. They arrived there to trade. And the British power through the East India Company grew in the 1700s, mainly through trade, mainly because Indian merchants liked to, to make money with them. The, the company then finds that the interior of parts of India is, is suffering various forms of civil war. They are, their alliance is sought by one Indian side, and they sign up with that, and they win. As a result, they're given ports and land. So it was a mixture of, first of all, trade, and then if you want to if you want your trade to prosper, you need peace. And one way of getting peace is to help one side win a war and then to, to settle the land. So it wasn't, it wasn't the same kind of thing that happened in North America. And, and the same in Africa too, the reasons were partly trade in East Africa. But what the, the main reason that the British ever got involved in East Africa in the 18, one main reason was lobbying by humanitarians to suppress the Arab slave trade. So all I want to you know, I, I don't want to detract from the, the bad things that, that happened. I do want to say that there was more to it than that. I also want to point out that the phenomenon of one people migrating for whatever reason and pushing other people off their land is not a peculiar European thing. I mean, Native American peoples were doing it long before Europeans got there. And I, yeah. grant you, I, I grant you the impact of Europeans on North America over time was far greater, far greater. But, but insofar as unjust invasion is unjust, that's right. It's not a peculiar European sin. No, I mean, and you actually, it's fascinating to me, actually, that the history of the North American continent, as you, as you point out, was a, a history of a series of attempted empires from various tribal Native American tribes that sought to expand their territory and rule over others in a way that is ubiquitous in human history. It, it yeah. is not, in the same way that slavery is ubiquitous in human history, it was not a uniquely American or uniquely British thing. It was something that was practiced across Africa, throughout the Middle East, and throughout history, many parts of the world. But what's different here, surely, is that people from a completely different part of the world, not just neighboring, but a completely different part of the world, just show up. I mean, one, one counterfactual is, what if a few Indians, I mean, India Indians, had done the same thing in reverse, showed up with a bunch of big ships on the coast of Cornwall. How would the English have responded to the arrival and settling of a bunch of people from completely different part of the world, <laughs> completely different bio, completely different culture, and just said, well, we're going to hang here for a bit. They, well, would have, they, would have, they, would have, they would have murdered them. I mean, they, 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 would have, they would have launched armies to get rid of them. And yet, and yet the Europeans thought it was fine for them yeah, but, but to they, go to other people's <laughs> countries and start bossing people around. Now, how can that be right? I, I, I'm not saying that was right, Bandu, but, but... But then you've under, then you pulled the rug out the entire, the entire argument. If it was okay. not right, if they had no right to go to these places where other people lived, but, but, okay. then the I, entire project is... No, and no, 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 I don't agree. I don't agree. Okay, tell uh, me why. So, so this is highly controversial, Andrew, but, uh, but I will say it because it's, it's a good example. Uh, I myself have, have doubts about the, the, the justice uh, of the British Empire 
uh, supporting Zionist immigration to Israel, simply because 90% of the people there were Arab. And um, although I think the British were well-meaning, uh, I think they underestimated the difficulty of, of having significant numbers of people, European Jews, planted in an Arab environment. So I think there are, there are doubts about whether that should have happened. However, <laughs> that was that was 100 years ago or 90 years ago. Now, I think the state of Israel has every right to exist because in many respects, not all respects, it is a, it's a, it is a prosperous liberal society which, which continues to have problems with its past. And, and with America, I mean, it is, you know, the origins of America are, are, are murky too. Yes, you, you fought off the wicked imperial British, but one reason you did that was because you were frustrated, excuse me, you, you colonists were frustrated because the 10,000 redcoats were trying to stop you invading the Indian lands. So there's an irony for you. Right, so, so, and here I, here, I'm a Christian, Andrew. You know, we, we were born in sin. We inherit sin. We have to make the best of, the best, best of uh, what we inherit. But the past was not pure. And in terms of the, you know, of the foundation of England, I mean, good Lord. Yes, if Indians had had the naval technology across the Atlantic and pitch up in Cornwall, they wouldn't have been welcomed. But then the, the, the island of, of the British Isles had been invaded hundreds of times by people not very far away across the sea from, from Germany and, and Normandy and, and whatever. So that's, that's a fact of history. Why, why do people do that? All, so, all sorts of reasons that they do it. But, but I, I think another thing we need to understand is, is, is this rationalization or is it just contextualization? Two things, one slavery, one violence. We living in societies like the United States or the UK right now, we enjoy levels of peace and health and prosperity that no one in our society on average has enjoyed before. And in terms of world history, it's unprecedented. On the whole, we can do without violence. But when you're part of, of a, let's say, a, a small people with insecure borders, surrounded by other peoples who are a bit strange to you, there's constant warfare and constant, uh, constant shifting of, of, of borders. It, it's a highly insecure place. And, and therefore, I think we have to accept that under those circumstances, people w were much more ready to resort to violence, and the violence was unconstrained. Um, so so part of the defense of empire is that it, pa listen, quote, unquote, pacified areas that were highly unstable and riddled with tribal conflict. There's no, uh, in terms of India, there's no doubt about that. In the, in, the seven, in the late 1700s, the Mughal Empire had descended into virtual, virtual anarchy. And, and the British, alongside the Indian allies, let's be clear about this, it's not just a British thing, alongside the Indian allies, took, took sides in, in various wars between Indians Help one side win, and and in effect pacified the country. And and I quote in my book, John Malcolm was a Scotsman who went out to India in the around eighteen hundred, and he remarks upon seeing the peasants return to their fields after the after the anarchy had passed, and, and seeing how the the, the the fields were becoming fertile fertile again. So that, that's one thing. But can I just on this? But you could also let me just also sure. say the part that we could also explain that kind of strategy or tactic in which you 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 come in as a third party to intervene in two other warring parties or two tribal parties yeah. let's say as, as a model you pick often you pick the you you might want to pick the smaller group that's likely to be more loyal to you because you have the ability to give them more leverage 
and then you plonk them into positions of power and you divide and conquer. This is what the British has did throughout Africa and to some extent in the Middle East, in which they, in which they deliberately set up stru structures that were designed to foment tribal antagonism in order for the British regime to be the, the pacifier, in other words, the, the big guy that could resolve these things. That does not seem to me terribly benign. It seems to me to be fundamentally abusive of the various countries and cultures that the British came upon. So, Andrew, I, 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 I'm willing to be, to be instructed on this. I don't recognize your description from what I know of, of the history of colonizing Africa. The one thing that makes me skeptical of your description that the, the British fermented tribal division was the British were pretty thin on the ground. London well, they exploited was... it. That's on, maybe that's on, a better word. Hang on, let, let's focus on this. Hang on. The, the issue of, of, of inciting or as a way, exacerbating tribal division in order to, to control, I don't think that was the case because the British were thin on the ground. London was constantly complaining about the, about the expense of these, these colonies, which is one reason why it was reluctant to expand in the 19th century, in the late 19th century. And colonial officials... Most of all, were concerned to keep the peace, and so the idea of, of, of as it were, inventing division and, and creating friction between peoples, I think, is is just not true. Now, uh, exploiting uh, it, though. Well, uh. well, yeah, but okay. Here you are as a colonial official. You, you've got to. You, you need to maintain. You you have the job of maintaining some kind of peace because if if the, if there's if there's widespread violence, then lots of people suffer. And so you 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 and you don't have the you don't have the power to control directly, uh, so you work with certain uh, African elites. Right. Yeah, but, but I guess I, I you, guess you I... pitch some of the elites against the others. You figure out which factions are more likely to be more attached to you, who the, who, who could use you against their rivals. I'm not saying that the British yeah. went in and created these animosities. Yeah. They were there already. Let's take an example of Iraq where the British came in and said, we can see this is a majority Shia country, but nonetheless, we've got these, these nice Sunnis that, who feel they ought to rule, and they actually kind of flattered by, in some ways by the British support for their minority rule and set up a system where the Shia was systematically discriminated against for decades subsequently. And now it definitely helped the British control Iraq to do that, pitting the Sunnis against the Shia, as it has almost every ruler in Iraq that's had to balance these different tribal factions, but doesn't it, it, it is an exploitative tactic to take control by literally dividing and conquering. I guess I, I, I guess I don't see it that way because I see I, I'm thinking at the end of the First World War, Ottoman authority is disintegrated in Iraq. Mm -hmm. There's no authority. And the League of Nations, the League of Nations mandated Britain to help establish a state in Iraq, and the, 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 the mandate was clearly not to dominate forever, but to help establish a state so that it, it could stand on its own feet. So there you are trying to create a new nation. And the, the, the king of Iraq was, was in fact a, an Arab from the Hejaz in, in Saudi Arabia, Faisal. And you, you're trying to create a, a new unitary state. How do you do it, given the, the different ethnic groups? As I understand it, the, the, the Sunnis had been, they tended to be the more educated uh, 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 among Iraqis, and they had been uh, privileged by the Ottomans themselves. 
in, in uh, government. So to some extent, the British took over, as I understand it, took over this Ottoman practice. Now, did that mean that there were continuing ethnic tensions, religious tensions within Iraq? Yes, there were. But uh, I guess I have some sympathy for, the, for if, if you're in the position of having to try and manage this, how do you do it? And, you know, we, we, all, we all saw in 2003 plus the difficulty of, of trying to make things better in the likes of Iraq, given the, the vying factions and different religious groups and, and whatever. So I, I think I, the difference between us here, I think, Andrew, is that I, I have some sympathy for someone put in the position of trying to make something good out of this mess. Yeah, and that's when the UN is telling you you need to do this but you didn't need to do it in the first place. Is there something, in, in some ways, it seems to me one of the premises of the book that at some point, because of growing technological capacities, there was going to be a moment in the evolution of, of human history in which some countries spread around the world and in which people began to move around in ways that they hadn't moved around before. I mean, shipping and all the rest of it across the Atlantic and the ability of, of a power like Britain to be to be somewhere like Australia, which was, I mean, the other side of the world, and at that time, almost unimaginably far away. I'm just, what gives people, and this is culturally and psychologically, what gave them the, the idea that let's go all the way around the bloody world, like the other side of it, just to set our asses down and to see what we can do there? I mean, who? Why do that? Why not stay home? What, what, what is what is wrong with here? But Andrew, why did you go to America? <laughs> well, no, I, no, so seriously, so it's it's it's, it's partly but, true. But, but but no, I went to America and then I had to apply for citizenship <laughs> and obey the rules of the United States. I didn't come here and say, okay, from now on, this is mine. Yeah, and but, not only that, yeah. but you guys who are already here. If you don't do us the courtesy of dying from the diseases we bring you, we're going to essentially hound you across the continent. Yeah, but but you're 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 forgetting that. Thinking about about let's say Australia now, you're forgetting when Europeans landed there that, that there wasn't anything like the United the state of the United States. No, um, but now uh, you're changing uh, something from from yeah, you had already yeah, been yeah, devastated. I know yeah, but in I, Australia, but, but nonetheless, it, let's go back to the question as to why you know. Why did people do this? What justified it? My my initial response is adventure and curiosity. I mean, why did why did Captain Cook ever discover for Europeans mm. Australia? It to some extent it, it was scientific discovery. Um, and and you're right, but you're right about one of the features of of European empires and and colonization was the fact that at that time in history we're talking the 19th century, really Europe had developed technologies, not least naval, also military, also medicinal, scientific, that enabled them to travel these huge distances and, and pitch up and... Uh, um, uh, Absolutely, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm talking to a moral ethicist here. Yeah. But, but hang on. Uh, and and so, that argument so if, is... If, 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 if the British had, for example, if the British hadn't acceded to, to Maori requests to establish a protectorate in New Zealand, the French or the Americans would have come. Okay. Uh, so, so here we so, have another. Here's, 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 here's the other answer, is that we went there to stop the others getting there first. And that's, or we uh, went there to protect ourselves from the Spanish here, or to tilt against the Portuguese there. In other words, the... In the, the, in the case of New Zealand, that's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it was also presumably also the case in 
in parts of the United States, in, in definitely in South America and the Caribbean, right? In yeah. which in which great great power. Now, what I'm trying to get out here is is something really very simple, which is that the Europeans believed that their cultural, what they understood to be their technological and indeed their theological superiority in their eyes, gave them the right to go and do what they wanted with people who were, whom they regarded as inferior. Isn't that, isn't that the core assumption behind that these other places are simply places in which Europeans enter and play? They're not places that the Europeans came to and understood it, that this is like a country like our own. Yeah. Okay. So, so some Europeans behaved that way, but but even in the 1500s, when the Spanish are invading islands of the Caribbean, you have these famous discussions back in Spain about the, the you know whether whether Caribbean peoples have rights, and and that's when you have moral theologians like uh, Francisco de Vitoria uh, arguing that yes, Caribbean. Caribbean people, peoples do have rights, and yes, we should respect their autonomy, provided they aren't doing something manifestly and grossly inhumane, like human sacrifice or, or, or uh, yeah, human sacrifice. I think is the example he gives there. So even back then, there were some Europeans saying no, uh, uh, native peoples do have rights, and in the 1800s, not in the 1600s, but in the 1800s, it is widely understood throughout the British Empire that if you want to occupy territory, you should do it by treaty with native peoples. Now, yes, indeed, sometimes treaties were signed in Africa and Australia and North America, where the native peoples didn't quite understand what they were signing up to. Sometimes treaties were broken, but sometimes treaties were understood and they were kept. So so it's not true to say that throughout the history of European colonialism, the idea that natives have no rights uh, prevail because in the 19th century, at least in principle, sometimes in practice, it was understood they did have rights. Yes, and and that clearly is is a is a moral argument that then was developed in Europe and took off in the Enlightenment and was also accompanied by a certain evangelical Christianity yeah, that exactly. that found slavery to be absolutely abhorrent and then actually overturned the British Empire. Well, not overturned it, but shifted the British Empire towards the policing of slavery and the prevention of the slave trade, which is something that absolutely needs to be understood as part of the, the, general, the general picture. Was there something unique about the African slave trade that strikes you as different than the way Europeans treated the natives of, of North America, the natives of, of Australia, the native the Maori, or or different, the different factions in India, for example? Yes, I mean, it does seem that, I mean, the, you know, we all know that the process of transporting slaves from West Africa to the Americas was horrendous. I mean, the conditions were horrendous. And we know that slavery in, in the West Indies and, and also on, in certain parts of the American colonies was horrendous. Now, I say horrendous because the word slavery historically can, can apply to, to a variety of different kinds of relationship. But I think what happened in the, in the West Indies and in the Atlantic slave trade was especially bad in terms of inhumanity. So that, that does distinguish it. 
So how did the people at the time justify the inhumanity? And I'm, by, by, by inhumanity, these slave ships were right something out of Nazi Germany, just just worse in so many ways. The, 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 Hi there. The dehumanization. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.